0: Amen. Well, I am uh, looking forward uh, to this new series. I uh, look forward to studying a a few different books all the time. Uh, And so there's a picture up on the screen. Uh, You probably can't tell what that map is of. uh, But over on the far left-hand side is the small town in Minnesota that I grew up in, a town about the same size as Iowa Falls, a town called Montevideo. I grew up mostly in a house on 8th Street, a few blocks south of Minnesota Highway 7, the main highway running east and west through town. When we were in high school, I moved to 9th Street and lived only one block south of Highway 7. My dad grew up about an hour east of us on a farm just north of Highway 7, uh, and so we would often go visit grandma and grandpa there. I also had many relatives in the Twin Cities area. Highway 7 conveniently would run from my house all the way into the Twin Cities. In fact, in Minneapolis, it becomes Lake Street, uh, which has been on the news quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. So we spent a lot of time in my family's vehicles driving along Highway 7. There's really not all that much to see. It's very reminiscent of the state of Iowa. There's a lot of corn and some beans, uh, occasionally some sugar beets as you drive that road from Montevideo all the way west. But you might see this little balloon right there in the middle that's marking a spot that actually, when I zoomed in, still wouldn't show up on the map. It's a small little village uh, called Roseland. And every time we drove east on on Highway 7, we would go past Roseland, Minnesota. But oftentimes, because it seems so insignificant to me, I would totally miss seeing this little village. Driving through, not even noticing really that it was there. But in the fall of 1998, I went to college uh, as a freshman, Orange City, Iowa, and I met this girl who also grew up not too far off of just in a farm a couple miles north of Highway 7. She lived right outside this little village of Roseland, and the little church in Roseland one block north of Highway 7 was her church. And so suddenly, this little village that seemed so insignificant and small and unnoticeable to me was quite noticeable. And this boy who had driven through there all of these years at the age of 20 in 2001 would get married in this church one block north of Highway 7 in the little village of Roseland. And then later, when God called me to become a pastor and I needed to have an internship somewhere, that church was kind enough to allow me... To do that. So it's a good story, but why do I tell you this story? Well, I tell you this story because this some things that at first may seem really small and maybe even insignificant are actually quite significant. Some of you are not very familiar with the Bible, others of you quite familiar with it. Some of you so familiar with it, you could say that most of your life, you have either been reading for yourself the Word of God, or you have been hearing someone else read the Word of God to you, or you have heard countless sermons, you've been involved in many Bible studies. And as we do those things, we start to develop over time, maybe some favorite books, I could list for you some of my favorite books of the Bible, ones that I've gone back to again and again. Maybe for you, it's the book of Psalms. Maybe for you, it's a larger book like Genesis or, or like the book of Romans. Maybe one of the four gospels that you go back to frequently. But as you journey through the Bible and journey through life, there are some small, short, but very significant passages and books of the Bible that I think we often miss. Even if you've been in a church for a long time and you've heard a lot of sermon series, what often gets skipped in sermon series is really big books because it's hard to do the whole book of Jeremiah. And and sometimes also we miss the very little books. And so what we're going to do from now through the rest of the summer into the fall is have a sermon series in which we will go over 12 of the Bible's shortest books. We're calling the series Don't miss this one. They're small, they're short, but they're not insignificant. Here's what we believe. We believe scripture is true. And here's what scripture says. Second Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All of it. And so we don't want to see any of these even short little books as insignificant. We don't want to drive through them without noticing like we would drive through Rosalind. And so that's what we're going to do over these next few weeks. Looking at five books of the Old Testament, seven books in the New Testament. Sometimes we'll spend only one Sunday, just pulling over really quick, one Sunday, one book, and that's it. Some of the books, the longest ones, we're going to spend three Sundays on. We're starting with one in the New Testament, the book of Second Thessalonians, and it's three chapters, and we're going to take three Sundays to go through it. Let me give you a quick bit of context as you turn to Second Thessalonians in your Bible. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, just like we, look, we lean on maps as we drive, there is a table of contents in the beginning of your Bible. And you can, because if you just do that method, you know, where you like page through the Bible and hope you land on it, that's going to be hard for you with these short books. You either got to like memorize that corny song in your head and sing it to yourself Or use the table of contents. But 2 Thessalonians is where we're going to be. Quick bit of context. 2 Thessalonians, we'll see here in a moment, is written by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Now, Paul and Silas had actually been in Thessalonica. Some of the letters that Paul wrote were to people that he had not uh, spent any time with. But in the case of the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Paul... Had been there. Paul and Silas, in fact, you could read about this. We're not there yet in our series in Acts. But in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas had been put in prison in Philippi for preaching the gospel. So they're, they're, they're stuck there in prison. They miraculously are freed from prison. And what do they do? They just go find another spot to preach the gospel. What's that other spot? That other spot is Thessalonica. You could read about it in Acts chapter 17. And an interesting story you would read there. That Paul and Silas go into the synagogue. And as is their custom, they seek to persuade the people there that Jesus is the Christ. And in fact, God's spirit works in the people in Thessalonica in such a way that many of those in Thessalonica, it says many of the Jews and the Greeks and many women came to put their faith in Jesus. And so the church starts, a church is planted there in Thessalonica, which is a city in Macedonia, modern day Greece. Okay? So this is the context. But Paul and Silas are only there a couple of weeks when an angry mob in the form in the city forms. And this angry mob brings the city, stirs the city up into an uproar, to the point where they're gonna go and do some harm to Paul and Silas. They think he's staying at the house of Jason, and so they go to the house of this man named Jason, but Paul and Silas are not found there. They drag Jason out of his own house, take some money from him, and in the meantime, Paul and Silas have escaped, and they've gone to another town, which they will do uh, the same thing. They're going to preach the gospel again, right? Fascinating story. So Paul has been there in Thessalonica before You can read about it in Acts chapter 17, and and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are two of the earliest books written in all of the New Testament. It hasn't been that long since Paul was there, and there's not much of a gap between 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. I would encourage you, there are common themes between the two books. 2nd Thessalonians, only three chapters. I would encourage you with all of these books that we're going to be going over, that you would do the practice. A lot of times we we don't read the Bible right. We just kind of Pull little quotes out of here and there. This one's going to be helpful for me today. And this one today, where this is a letter. uh, And some of the books are are long to read in one sitting. But this one, you could do the whole thing in 10 to 15 minutes, maybe less. So I'd encourage you to do that sometime this week. Here's what you would find, I think, if you read through uh, the book of 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to do this with each each of the little books that we go through. Kind of give you a quick one-sentence subtitle for the book. I write these often as I study a book and come up with these. Then I write them right at the top of the book in my Bible so that I can remember. A quick reference. What's Second Thessalonians about? Again, here's what I think it's about. Jesus is yet to return, so stand firm and get back to work. Okay? Jesus is yet to return, so stand firm and get back to work. Uh, You can see by the time we get to the end of this book, if you agree with me that that's what it's about. But today, we go over just 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians 1, title of the message is, Growth Through Suffering Until Jesus Comes to Judge. Now, again, on the website, uh, so a link would be in the video that you're watching at home, either on Facebook or YouTube, for the sermon notes and application guide. Some of you that are here maybe printed this off before you came. Uh, and you're going to see, uh, now I've kind of done this whole introduction of the series, the introduction of Second Thessalonians, now let's get into the Word of God. Rather than, again, because we're trying to compress everything into an hour, I'm going to read every word of this, but rather than reading it all and then going back, we'll just go through it bit by bit. I know Pastor Stan prayed earlier, but I just want to pray again as we start looking at God's Word. So let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that you have given us your word and uh, we just confess we skip over parts of it. But we don't want to do that. We do believe that all of it is breathed out by you and it's useful. And so I pray that Second Thessalonians would, would, that you would use this book and it would become useful in our lives, not just sometime in the future, but even this week. Work in us by your spirit for your glory now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here's what we're going to see in this. We're going to see a problem, a solution, and then a prayer. Interestingly, all three of the chapters here in 2 Thessalonians include a prayer. Okay? It ends chapter 1 with a prayer. So we're going to look at the problem, the solution, and a prayer. Here's the big idea for today's message continue to endure suffering by trusting that God is at work in you and justice will be done when Jesus returns. All right. So let's take a look. I told you at the beginning, we're going to hear about a problem. The problem is going to be persecution and afflictions. But before we get to the problem, we have a pretty standard greeting. Here's what we got. We have the authors of the letter, the recipients of the letter, and a greeting. Paul, Sylvanus. I told you Silas, Sylvanus is, is, is the Greek form of that name. So Paul, Sylvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there we have the introduction laying out pretty clearly for us. Who wrote it? Who's it written to? That's helpful for us to have context as we go in. And then we start to hear about their faith. What's this church like? Let me just tell you this. It's a good church. Like if if you lived in that region, this is a church that you and your family would want to be a part of. Paul, praises them. He, here's what he says. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because here's why. Here's what he, why is it a good church? Is it because they've got a really good live stream going? Uh, no. Like the, Their fog machine isn't all that great, right? That's not why it's a good church. Why is it a good church? It's a good church because of this. Here's what he says. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Isn't that a good church to be a part of, right? You see people, their faith is growing abundantly and their love for one another keeps increasing. What an awesome thing. So it's not surprising then when we get to verse four, that Paul likes to brag about them. This is what pastors do. They either complain or brag about their churches when they go have meetings with other pastors. Okay. Okay. Paul, when he goes to have meetings with other pastors, he's talking to them. And by the way, when I go to those meetings, I brag, uh, boast about here's work that God is doing in our church. And here's what Paul does in verse four. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith. That doesn't sound great. Remember, this is a relatively new church with relatively new Christians. And it kind of sounds a little bit like maybe they're still in their honeymoon phase. Right? Like everything's just going great. They love each other. Their faith is growing abundantly. All of these good things. So everything must be kind of like peaceful. They must be really affluent. Everything's probably just going really well, right? Well, let's read the rest of verse four. In all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. How is it that this church is growing in their love for each other? How is it that their faith is growing abundantly? How is it that they're becoming steadfast? Well, God's doing this work in them as they endure persecutions and afflictions. Isn't that how our God works though? that we would maybe prefer that in a time of peace and affluence, that's where we really start to grow. But so often, it is in the midst of more things like persecution and afflictions that God would use to cause his people to grow. And so a quick point of application, this still happens, doesn't it? Is God still at work in the midst of people who are persecuted, right? This list could be longer But see India, see China, see all sorts of other places where being a follower of Jesus becomes a very, very hard and even sometimes dangerous thing to be. Yet in those places, the faith of many of our brothers and sisters in Christ grows strong. Their love for one another is strong, right? What about afflictions? Do we see God at work through afflictions? Did you get uh, in this last week, hopefully in the mail, if you're a part of our church, you got this Connecting Point article that Leanne put together after talking with Ryan and Amber. And we've, for a long time now, been praying for them. Now they're relocated temporarily to Minnesota. and, And they've been through a lot. They've only been married a couple of years. They've dealt with infertility, a broken back, and now leukemia and all of the treatment going along with it. Is God at work through all of those afflictions? Well, did you read that thing? And if you didn't, by the way, we posted it on Facebook so you can read it there. How does somebody who goes through all that say something like this? It's hard for me. This is Amber. It's hard for me to fathom that before time God knew who I was. He knew this cancer was going to happen. I'm grateful that God made a way for me to have the transplant sooner rather than later. Considering COVID-19, I'm grateful that God answered my prayer about becoming a wife and mother. I couldn't do any of this without Ryan, especially if he was in a wheelchair, even though I didn't get to have a child of my own. And according to the oncologist pharmacist, I'm not likely to in the future. I'm blessed to have Rylan as a stepchild. Over and over again, when you hear from Ryan and Amber, you you can hear the ways that God is at work building up their faith and their steadfastness through affliction. God is at work as God builds that up for them. And as God uses them as a light for many other people all the time. And so we see examples in Thessalonica. We see examples in China and India, and we see examples in Ryan and Amber. So we have a problem and then we have a solution. Let's look at verses 5 to 10. Really, 5, I didn't know whether to put it with the first part or the second part, but let's just look at 5 really quickly together. Verse 5 says this. i got to move my notes around really quick. All right, here we go. Verse 5 says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, and God's judgment in some ways is already beginning, and He is mentioning to them that that one thing that God is at work doing right now, presently, is that He is considering you worthy, uh, doing some work in you. Because and the reason God is doing work, and the reason you're being persecuted, is because you're now a part of the kingdom of God. You once lived in the domain of darkness, living like the rest of the world, right? But God rescued you out of that and put you into the kingdom of his beloved son, and now you're living a different kind of way. This is bringing about persecution. Life would probably be easier and smoother for you if you were not a believer. But God is at work in the midst of this. And now, look at verse 6. Because the question is, What about those who are opposed to the Christians there? They're suffering persecution and affliction, which means there are people who are persecuting and people who are afflicting them, right? What about those people? They just kind of get away with it? Like like their life's going to be fine? Listen to what he writes. Verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So is the persecution of Christians in Thessalonica, is that just? No. Will there be justice? Yes. Right? The persecution of Christians in Thessalonica is not just. Will there be justice though? Yes. Can you see that there in verse six in the beginning of verse seven? But then the question is, okay, when? (laughs) When is there justice? When does, when does justice happen? Here's what it says. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So when does this happen? This happens when Jesus comes again. And who will experience this vengeance of God? It says here, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What will it be like? Verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Just let that sink in for a moment. We long for justice. The people there in Thessalonica surely also long for justice. And Paul tells them, Oh, it will come. It will come when Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, this is what it will be like for them. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. They will be away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. This is what it will be like. Those who are separated from him will not be experiencing a never-ending party with their buddies in hell. They will be experiencing never-ending, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord you will be enduring the emptiness of life without the presence of God for all of eternity. So Paul reminds them, oh, there will be justice. Well, we were just singing, even so come, come Jesus. Why do we sing that if this is what's going to happen when he comes? We sing that because this isn't the only thing that's going to happen when he comes. Take a look at verse 10. Verse 10, it says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. What was the testimony that Paul shared? Well, many things. He sums it up in 1 Corinthians 15 this way. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried. And then on the third day he rose according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the testimony. That's the gospel that Paul would share. So repent and put your faith in Jesus. And many of them, those in the church in Thessalonica, they believe this to be true and they put their faith in Jesus. And so they have this sure living blessed hope, which we also have who trust in Christ that on the day when he returns, we will not receive the eternal punishment and destruction that we deserve. We will not be cast away from the presence of the Lord, but we will glorify him and we will marvel at him in his coming, which is why we sing even so come. Lord Jesus, come. And so, two outcomes on the day that Jesus returns. One, eternal punishment and separation from God. Or two, glorifying and marvel at G- at, the, at our Lord and Savior, Jesus. So, of course, the important question for you here and for you watching online is, what will be your experience on the day of Jesus' return? you cannot be depending on works that you have done that maybe have somehow earned you enough enough favor with God that he's going to be kind to you because you're better than a lot of other people. That's not the way it works. The standard, the measuring stick, all of us fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus came and Jesus died and Jesus rose again so that all who trust in him would have eternal life with Him forever. There's one other point of application as well, I think we need to note in this. And that is that as people made in God's image, we desire justice. Don't we? As people made in God's image, we desire justice. We know It's kind of built into us. There is right and there is wrong. There is good and there is evil. We desire justice. If something wrong is done to us, we want justice. If something wrong is done to people that we love, we want justice to be served in some way. It's because we're made in God's image and we know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. And certainly as people who belong to him, we should seek to be just people who seek justice in every way that we can. Yet, I want you to note in this passage that Paul does not encourage them to put their hope in policy change or cultural revolution. You want justice? Those things are helpful tools Perhaps some of those things can be used to to, uh, reach the ends that God has in mind. But here's what we know. We know that we will not attain perfect justice ultimately through all sorts of good things that God has put in place, right? Systems of government and the rule of law are good things put in place by God in order to promote what is good and to restrain evil in our fallen world. And so we need all of these things. We need those who make laws. We need those who enforce laws. And we need those who bring justice to those who break laws. We need all of these things and we're grateful for them. They're all necessary, part of God's plan, like I said, for promoting good and restraining evil in our fallen world. Yet our hope is not ultimately in those things. We're not going to see good and complete and final ultimate justice come by those means. How does good and complete and final and perfect justice come? It comes upon the return of Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus, who is perfectly just and merciful, and he's coming again. So... Hope in Jesus, right? And then, as I mentioned, I already said a lot of that stuff, so we're going to skip by it. As I mentioned, it ends with a prayer. And so let's just quick look at this prayer. The other prayers I'm going to spend more time on in the next couple weeks, I think. This one, I just want you to read it. We're going to look at it, and I want you to use it as a model for praying for ourselves, for our own church. He's going to pray about God's work in them. Here's what it says in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's Paul praying? What's their problem? Persecution and affliction. What is Paul praying for them? Kind of interesting, isn't it? He's not praying for an end to the persecution and affliction. That might have been their prayer request, but that's not what Paul's praying for. What's Paul praying for? Paul is praying that God would make them worthy of his calling. That God would use their suffering to sanctify them. That's what Paul's praying for. Not end their suffering, but he's praying, God, use this suffering to sanctify them. That's a good way for us to pray for one another as a church, isn't it? He's praying that God would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. (laughs) Paul's praying. He knows what it's like to be persecuted. He's praying for persecuted people. God, I I know they might want to give up. God, give them resolve by your power to keep doing works of good, to keep doing works of faith for the sake of your name. Help them to press on. Make them steadfast, God. So Paul is praying for them, and then it ends with the so that of the prayer, verse 12. So that what? So that the name of Jesus is glorified. That's the end. That's what Paul desires more than anything else that through them and the way that they deal with the persecutions persecution and afflictions coming at them is that they would deal with them in a way that God is glorified and so again like I said not going to spend much time on this this week but I would just encourage you it's easy to get into a rut in prayer even as we pray uh, for our church family like well uh, maybe you even like just pray for people randomly God brings them to mind and you just pray but I'm not sure what to pray just use biblical prayers. Paul prays for churches all the time. There's going to be three of them here in 2 Thess- Thessalonians. Use that as a guide to pray for one another. We're going to look more at the prayers in chapters 2 and 3 in a bit more detail. Remember, here's the big idea of 2 Thessalonians. Jesus is yet to return. So stand firm and get back to work. Okay. And the big idea today was this. Continue to endure suffering by trusting that God is at work in you and justice will be done when Jesus returns. I'm going to pray and uh, then we're going to sing a song. So let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are at work. Thank you that, uh, as we sang earlier, you're sovereign in our greatest joy, but also in our deepest cry that there's not a situation that anybody in our church family, that anybody listening online is going through at which in which you are not at work. Thank you that you, God, are for us who belong to you. Thank you, God, that there will one day be justice. As we sang earlier, there will be justice. All will be new. Your name forever, faithful and true. Jesus, you're coming soon. And so even as the early church would declare, we too declare, oh God, even so come. Lord Jesus, come. We see brokenness all around us. We desire justice. We see the effects of sin all around us. We want Jesus to come, but God, would you also help us to be people that are making other people ready? that we would be faithful in proclaiming the gospel, recognizing that all who do not hear and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ will suffer eternal punishment away from the presence of the Lord. So God, may that be one of our motivations for making Christ known in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. Thank you for all that Christ has done for us, that we might belong to you not only for the joy that that gives us now, but for the joy that we will experience for all of eternity. Give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.